Sarcoma Connect is an initiative of core to ed This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organisation or the rest of the Sarcoma Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to oncologyoncore2ed.com. Good day, everyone, and uh, welcome to this uh, podcast on updates and clinical learning points from the ESMO and NCCN Bone Cancer Guidelines. Today, together with uh, Professor Robert Mackey, we will uh, discuss changes in the last version of the ESMO Clinical Practice Guidelines and NCCN Guidelines for Bone Cancer based on the latest clinical data, and we will also try to make uh, some comparison on the two different guidelines. I am Silvia Stacchiotti, medical oncologist. I work at the National Cancer Institute of Milan, Italy. I am fully dedicated to research and clinical management of adult patients affected by uh, sarcoma of any size. I collaborate with all the institutions, societies, and patient advocates involved in the research and care of sarcomas with a special focus on ultra-rare sarcoma types. In particular, I am involved in all the ESMO activities regarding sarcomas and I am the current subject editor for the ESMO guidelines committee for sarcoma and GIST and I am also the current president of the Italian Sarcoma Group. And you, Bob? I'm Bob Mackey. I'm a medical oncologist working in experimental therapeutics and sarcoma medical oncology at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And uh, it's just a pleasure to be able to talk with you, Sylvia, about uh, some of these issues that that arise regarding treatment of this rare group of cancers. As we are both aware and deal with every day, sarcomas are very rare. They represent less than 1% of the cancers that happen in adults. But despite this rarity, people such as yourself, Sylvia, and many of our colleagues have gotten together to assemble the guidelines both for ESMO and NCCN regarding diagnosis and management of these cancers. And I think it's really important to point out, which is highlighted, I think, in both sets of guidelines, the role of the multidisciplinary team in both diagnosing and in treating sarcomas. Uh, Sylvia, can you make a few comments on on some of the issues that you've had to address uh, in in Milan? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Let's start from uh, a kind of general introduction on uh, how the ESMO guidelines uh, are conceived. The ESMO guidelines are considered clinical practice guidelines, of course, in this case for treatment of bone sarcomas. They were published, the last version was published in 2021 and was the result of a discussion promoted by the ESMO in partnership with the Huracan, Genturis and Petcan during a virtual consensus meeting that was held during the COVID pandemic in December 2020 and was followed after by several rounds of email. The uh, recommendations included in the guidelines are the results of a consensus among the European multidisciplinary sarcoma community, I would say, of course, of experts in the field. And it is very clearly stated in the ESMO guidelines that sarcoma need to be discussed within the multidisciplinary tumor board 
of a center or even a network with experience in a sarcoma to plan the optimal approach to each single patient as it has been shown very well by our French colleagues over the last years that being treated in a center of expertise from disease onset, not only for the advanced phase, corresponds to a better outcome. So uh, the ESMO guideline discussion to try to engage the largest representative of the European sarcoma community involved the members of the uh, ESMO sarcoma faculty, but also experts appointed in the uh, institution belonging to the uh, sarcoma domain of the European Reference Network for Rare Adult Solid Cancer, which is uh, called URACAM and a representative from the European Reference Network for Genetic Tumor Risk Syndrome, GenTuris, and the European Reference Network for Pediatric Oncology, PEDCAN. In addition, uh, we uh, discussed together with a representative from Japan and also from India. How the uh, discussion happens to be within uh, the NCCN guidelines? Well, it's constructed a little bit differently. There's a group of about 30 experts who meets at this point virtually and occasionally in person, at least in the original setup of the guidelines. The group is led by Margaret von Maren, a sarcoma expert up at Fox Chase, also here in Philadelphia. And um, they oftentimes will add in new information uh, more than once a year as sort of a, a treatment pathway scheme for helping to manage uh, this group of diagnoses, all the way from uh, diagnosis through treatment of primary and uh, metastatic disease. Uh, as, as new new data become available from clinical trials, those um, data are incorporated into the guidelines. And I guess we can begin to dig into some of those specifics. It's equally recognized in the NCCN guidelines, the importance of that multidisciplinary care between surgery, interventional radiology, medical oncology, radiation, and pathology, all contributing uh, parts to the uh, diagnosis and treatment of, of this group of patients. One key point, which I think is an evolving issue and not well brought out exactly when to do this sort of a thing is, is when should we do genomic testing on sarcomas of soft tissue and bone? Um, I guess we're mostly restricting things to, to bone today. Uh, but has implications for um, uh, diagnoses such as Ewing sarcoma that can occur in both soft tissue and bone. Oh, interesting. And do you uh, also have pediatricians participating to the discussion? There are. They certainly do contribute simply because there's a lot of overlap, especially that adolescent and young adult uh, um, age group who uh, end up with uh, many of these diagnoses. Does the same thing happen with uh, ESMO? We did mention the pediatricians being involved there. Yeah, and in fact, we have this uh, representative from PEDCAN, which makes, uh, especially for bone sarcoma, the uh, discussion, of course, uh, much more interesting. So the last version of the ESMO guidelines uh, for bone was completely reshaped compared to the prior ones to align uh, these uh, to, uh, I mean, to have the same structure that we have for soft tissue and uh, GIST, soft tissue sarcoma and GIST. And in the guidelines, uh, in addition to pointing out the relevance of uh, the multidisciplinary tumor board, we try to discuss uh, how important it is to have a correct pathologic uh, diagnosis and uh, to assess the presence of uh, molecular alteration, at least every time these uh, impact uh, the diagnosis 
Of course, uh, probably the ESMO guidelines compared to the NCCN, but you can correct me, are mostly focusing on what can be considered the standard approach, starting from diagnosis and ending with uh, treatment. So when a treatment is not formally approved, is not formally labeled for a given disease, this is part, is called investigational, if it is assessed within a clinical study, or optional when a, a treatment can be discussed on a case-by-case basis, but there is not such a strong evidence to consider it as a standard. So uh, in the new version of the guidelines, we are mentioning entities that were not even considered before, like SIDAX uh, or BICOR tumor types. And uh, compared to the past, we have now a list of uh, new compounds, uh, such as, uh, for example, uh, regorafenib in osteosarcoma, for which there is some evidence of activity, even though they are not formally approved. Uh, in the list. But I know that in the NCCN, uh, it is a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Sylvia. The committee meets relatively frequently to assess new data as, as they become available. I'll, I'll mention one of those points in, in just a moment. But as those uh, data become available, they are added in uh, to the guidelines as potential options for care. What happens in the United States is that this document, the guidelines are oftentimes used by insurance companies as to what's considered orthodox treatment for one or another diagnosis. It may be based on phase two data, or you may be lucky enough to have a randomized clinical trial, but in either case, if, there, if the experts believe that there's enough data to support the use of a medication or a combination, it will be listed there. And I, I think it highlights also the differences that we have between the United States and Europe regarding access to some of these agents, uh, which are not, as you mentioned, EMA approved necessarily. They have not gone through randomized clinical trials and gone through the full review process. And I understand that each country is quite different in Europe in terms of the ability to access uh, what may have been active drugs seen, let's say, in phase two trials. Is that, is that an accurate uh, statement? Yeah, it's absolutely correct. There are a lot of discrepancies across European countries as the system is completely different. And once, even after the approval by EMA of a new compound, each single state country has to confirm the approval and define if a compound is a can be available uh, in the local place uh, or not, uh, while uh, the proportion of patients who uh, can cover the cost of an off-label drug uh, by themselves, thanks to the insurance, is of course very, very, very different. Yeah. While that may apply for some of the newer agents uh, that are just being studied in phase one or phase two, at least for some of the uh, more standard agents that are available and used commonly, there's a fairly consistent use, it seems, of those agents. I think perhaps a very good example of that might be in Ewing sarcoma, for example, where now we have randomized data looking at the V-Day, V-I-D-E versus VAC-I-E, V-A-C-I-E combinations in primary Ewing sarcoma, where it seems that the five-drug combination is superior. And uh, I think that's been incorporated into to both sets of guidelines for primary treatment of Ewing sarcoma. Now for us, it's uh, completely different, uh, and as said, uh, it is uh, varies a lot uh, if you move from a country to the other one. So there are places in which uh, drugs are more often available, uh, 
while uh, other like uh, Italy, it is uh, very rarely the case. So, you know, if uh, there are drugs with evidence of activity, but not formally approved, it is very difficult for patients to be treated or for us to change the, the conventional regimen. In other words, it may be that it's difficult to get off-label use of medications that might be thought to be uh, useful, let's say, something like immunotherapy for uh, particular subtypes of uh, sarcoma um, that are out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You are absolutely right. And it is interesting that this does not only apply to treatment, but also to diagnostic procedure, for example. If uh, a molecular testing uh, is not uh, formally approved in a given uh, setting, it can be uh, completely not uh, available. For example, uh, in the guidelines now, we talk about chondrosarcoma. We know that uh, IDH mutation can uh, be important for uh, driving uh, treatment within or outside clinical study. This kind of assessment uh, is uh, rarely done in our patient uh, as uh, it is not considered a standard uh, diagnostic uh, path or predictive uh, analysis. So, yeah, there are very different uh, things. I was just thinking of uh, some of these uh, tumors of bone that we treat. Ewing sarcoma, it's pretty much a standard of care to get uh, at least fish testing, although it's helpful perhaps to have more information like the uh, fusion type uh, between EWSR1 and FLY1. But for example, um, we don't get routine genomic testing on osteosarcoma, for example, even though it's now becoming clear that there are multiple genomic subtypes of that single diagnosis. Yeah, in, in, uh, in Italy, for example, uh, fish analysis uh, to uh, look at the most common translocation of fusion genes uh, is uh, available uh, at least in the major center for treatment of uh, sarcomas. But uh, of course, we do not uh, sequence on a regular basis osteosarcoma and uh, also uh, less common uh, fusion gene like SIDAX uh, or BICOR are not uh, searched on a regular basis, are only searched when there is a very strong uh, diagnostic uh, doubt. And uh, I'm sure that these uh, impact uh, the quality. Uh, within a center of expertise or network of expertise, uh, the policy is, uh, is different. And uh, for that reason, it's so important to have all cases uh, reviewed by uh, experts or pharmacologists. Uh, that's a very good point. We don't routinely get every tumor sequenced here in the United States either with the next generation sequencing, although that was, uh, again, shown very well by our French colleagues that you change the diagnosis 15 or 20 percent of the time, even after you've made your initial diagnosis, the extra genetic information can really uh, impact diagnosis. And if you don't get the diagnosis correct, well, then you're not going to treat the patient correctly either. Yeah. Then I think that's another important uh, uh, part that was ad added to the ESMO guidelines this time was uh, the small chapter with something more in the supplementary data about uh, genetic uh, predisposition. This was uh, thanks to the uh, participation of uh, uh, Genturis. As I said before, this is the group of people uh, working on genetic predisposition and uh, cancer. And we could include in the guidelines uh, when, for example, uh, the presence of uh, a P53 alteration has to be uh, looked for. I think that 
would be very, very important to expand this uh, area, maybe uh, with a dedicated uh, uh, guidelines covering not only bone, but uh, all the sarcomas. Is that something on which uh, are you also working? Uh, I, I work very closely with our clinical genetics team, and they have a large number of uh, Lee Fraumeni patients with TP53 mutations um, who they are following, as well as those with BRCA1 or 2 or familial adenomous polyposis families. And it's interesting to see that sarcoma patients can uh, pop up in any of those uh, syndromes, not just in uh, Lee Fraumeni syndrome, for example. I think there was really great work done by David Thomas and his colleagues in Australia, which showed that even when you didn't have a strong family history of sarcoma or other cancers, that uh, as many as 12% of patients ultimately were shown to have a, a familial predisposition for cancer. So I'm really glad that uh, um, there's been uh, the recognition uh, that at least for the osteosarcoma patients that we should be doing some screening for uh, familial syndromes like uh, Lee Fraumeni and, and some of these others. Since they're now able to analyze dozens, if not hundreds of genes that may either be rare or highly penetrant and highly penetrant, or maybe they have smaller impact, but uh, can still uh, affect uh, the frequency of different cancers, including sarcomas, that is uh, absolutely uh, critical that we uh, keep that in mind as, as we treat sarcoma patients. So I'm delighted to see those changes. Yeah, in particular with bone sarcoma, that is a, a kind of a, a tumor, especially for you again, in osteosarcoma, usually arising in, uh, in children or young adults. And in fact, uh, we are planning to have a, a session uh, fully dedicated to genetic position and uh, sarcoma during the ESMO conference in uh, 2023. We hope so. So with regard to osteosarcoma, what do you wrote about uh, low-grade osteosarcoma? Which kind of approach you suggest uh, to your patient? Those are very challenging tumors. Those are a distinct minority of uh, osteosarcomas, to be sure. So uh, perhaps the most common place for those to rise are in the um, uh, mandible and sometimes in, in some of the long bones as well. We follow the guidelines and uh, we obtain a biopsy of such a patient and it shows uh, a low-grade tumor. Normally, for high-grade osteogenic sarcoma, we will give neoadjuvant chemotherapy as a standard of care in both sets of guidelines. But for these low-grade osteosarcomas, uh, surgery alone oftentimes is the best standard of care. And I think that's also highlighted in at least some of the guidelines. Um, one of the I think, complex issues regarding head and neck uh, osteogenic sarcomas is again, kind of almost an additional layer of multidisciplinary care that needs to be undertaken for such patients because you're not just dealing with medical oncologists and surgeons. These are head and neck surgeons, and you may also have to engage uh, the orthopedic surgeons or the plastic surgeons for reconstruction uh, issues. And it makes it a, an exceedingly complex anatomic site for this, whatever it is, 10 or 15% of uh, osteosarcomas that affect the head and neck area. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've had equal challenges in uh, trying to manage those sorts of patients. Yeah, and uh, in fact, uh, this is uh, the context in which it could happen that we suggest radiation therapy, even for a low-grade uh, bone sarcoma, when the uh, surgical resection uh, has been an R1, marginal resection in head and neck, uh, low-grade osteosarcoma. We discussed in the multidisciplinary board also adding uh, radiation 
And uh, I am happy today to say that in Europe, uh, we have much more facilities uh, for proton beams and carbon ions uh, radiation that were not here in the past. Uh, so we could even uh, specify in the guidelines that this kind of uh, treatment can be used uh, when the anatomic uh, location prevents the uh, good amount of uh, radiation uh, with photons. So this is a niche again, but uh, we are used to treat uh, so such an ultra-rare uh, situation, as I said before. And uh, with regard to, again, osteosarcoma, when we look at high-grade osteosarcoma, of course, it's clear which is the treatment below 40. What about patient above 40? Anything new that you added in the guidelines? I don't know there's anything new in the guidelines other than I think it's well recognized that it's very difficult to treat patients above 40, at least with the full doses of the chemotherapy that we give to uh, what's typically adolescents. For example, um, the guidelines generally suggest the use of 12 grams per meter squared uh, per dose of uh, high-dose methotrexate when that's being incorporated into the methotrexate doxorubicin-cisplatin combination that is part of both guidelines. Um, above age 40, though, it becomes difficult to uh, give that high of a dose of methotrexate with, um, and, and still have people's uh, kidneys stay intact. So in, in general, we'll see that people receive, uh, in the general, somewhere around, along the lines of six to eight grams per meter squared per dose of methotrexate. We, we still think it's an active agent, despite there being a couple of randomized trials that showed that it wasn't necessarily helpful. It still remains a standard of care. I think there's still some debate about its use. But as a practical issue, I, I generally start with the standard uh, doxorubicin-cis platin first before uh, thinking about the methotrexate dosing for, for those patients over 40. I don't know if you uh, encounter similar issues. Yeah, yeah. We, we also do the same, even though in the lack of uh, a direct comparison, uh, if a patient uh, uh, above uh, 40 is uh, fit, has no comorbidities, uh, we always try to... I mean, and is not a, you know, of course, 70 years old. Uh, we always try to uh, use also methotrexate uh, because we cannot say that uh, high dose iphosphamide is surely uh, superimposable. But yeah, of course, above 40 is, uh, is more uh, challenging to treat the disease. Well, Sylvia, we've touched on uh, Ewing sarcoma, chondrosarcoma, osteogenic sarcoma at least a little bit. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit just for a couple of minutes here at the end on chordoma, sarcoma that you're well known for treating. Um, and what, what, what is your approach for that uh, particularly rare cancer, which can affer, uh, affect uh, either the sacrum or the clivus, um, two very difficult areas to operate on. Um, and I think that you have, do have some guidance in the, in the guidelines for treatment for chordoma as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, chordoma is uh, somehow always uh, a frustrating disease uh, because, uh, first of all, it uh, usually arises in very uh, challenging anatomic uh, location, uh, which prevent uh, the complete surgical resection and uh, are usually related to a, a very morbid uh, procedure. Then due to the uh, biology and also to the characteristic of the tissue, the uh, proportion of patient relapsing even after a complete surgical resection or uh, high dose uh, uh, adrons radiation therapy is, uh, is high. I'm not sure of which is the proportion of patient that can be cured, but uh, uh, is not uh, above 25%. 
So the vast majority of patients uh, at some point uh, need to be treated with a systemic uh, compound. And uh, this is the perfect example of how patients uh, with a sarcoma can be discriminated as we do not have uh, a single uh, potentially active uh, compound approved in the disease. So everything we use uh, is uh, formally off-label. And uh, in spite of uh, studies, uh, small study, of course, uh, not comparative, okay, but uh, uh, showing some activity of uh, antiangiogenics uh, or AGFR inhibitor, we are still missing uh, a formally labeled uh, drug. In any case, uh, we do not give up. Uh, and in collaboration with the Cordama Foundation, we are working hard and I'm very happy that uh, we could uh, have a chapter a small chapter, but fully dedicated to Cordoma, also in the guidelines, even though it is a very rare disease. And what about uh, uh, you and chondrosarcoma? Many uh, interesting uh, new options are starting to be, at least within studies, available. Yeah, we're, we're certainly hopeful, as you mentioned, with those IDH mutations that uh, will gather further data on the utility of IDH1 and 2 inhibitors and, and those 40 or 50% of tumors that have those mutations. Uh, for the de-differentiated version of uh, chondrosarcoma, which oftentimes is treated like osteogenic sarcoma, and there are at least hints of the usefulness of immuno-oncology agents, PD-1 inhibitors, and, and combinations with CTLA-4 inhibitors, um, but those that still remains investigational by and large. I think what you're pointing out is uh, this is one more reason to have uh, patients seen in high-volume centers that have studies where even if it's difficult to access drugs, at least there's the uh, you know, possibility of a number of centers being able to offer something novel to a patient based on the biology of their very specific tumor. Yeah, and, and it, I think that is uh, great to see that uh, at least in uh, some areas there are new compounds uh, under development. Well, time is short, so I think we'll stop things here for today. And uh, Sylvia, thank you very much for uh, the conversation together. I know we could break out any one of these topics into a much longer story, bring in some other friends for a discussion on any one of these topics, and hopefully we'll be able to do that for a future session. Yeah, and we can maybe uh, uh, recall in that uh, uh, there is uh, another uh, podcast uh, in which uh, uh, our colleagues uh, are presenting uh, what was new during the uh, ASCO 2022. In particular, we had in a plenary session uh, uh, a study on uh, USACOMA, which is not uh, very common to have for us, uh, the RICAR study. And uh, Dr. Rebecca Dent, Dr. Chiara Cremolini, Dr. Lee and uh, uh, Jonathan Trent are discussing all about uh, uh, that uh, in the podcast that can be uh, seen on the website. I really want to thank uh, uh, the organizer for this uh, event and uh, to all of you for uh, listening to the podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.